Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives, from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Hi everyone, Dr. Adriana Popescu here with you again with another episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative (laughs) Perspectives on Mental Health. And I'm really excited today to have with me as my guest, Dr. Terry Hope. Um, She is a, a psychologist like myself who inspires and creates positive, lasting change for individuals and corporations by igniting their intuitive capacities. She is a scientist, a clinical researcher, and a published author and global pioneer in cognitive neuroscience and emotional transformation. She holds a PhD and doctorate of natural medicine with advanced studies on quantum medicine, energy transformation, and consciousness. Her current focus in research is revolutionizing and transforming stress in the workplace. Welcome, Terry. Hey, how are you? Wonderful. So happy to have you here today. I've known you for quite some time from the work that we both have done with Access Consciousness, and I definitely want to talk about that and all the other really interesting things you've been up to. Um, But first, like I always like to start with my guests, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to do this work? Let us get to know you a bit. Well, and thank you for that. Um, I started, well, I actually started working in the world of sort of exploration of alternative medicine and alternative forms of, um, we'll call it healing or whatever, really a long time ago, like as many as 35 years ago, and then became more focused and serious about it, I would say in about 2008. So, um, and really started to look at how I I came from the pharmaceutical industry. I used to work in cardiovascular medicine and anti-infectives. And it was not very, it was challenging because I knew that there was something that was different and we weren't really addressing to me the root cause of what was going on. It was just strictly using what was available, nothing wrong with it, but what was available, I'm going like, but is what if there's more to it? So I started really diving more into um, complementary or alternative methods to do this. And then, um, and I've been doing research. I kind of jumped into research because I was like, oh my God, we need to support, or it would be great to <laughs> support that area too, because a lot of people are looking for evidence, even though we don't need evidence. Lots of people, lots of people, we can measure the, the effects just like you measure effects of pharmaceutical products, we can measure the effects, but we can't measure the whatever sometimes, the in-between piece, because it's not measurable. So um, I've really been on a mission to do as much research as I can to support that aspect. So there is for those curious minds that want to go, you know, does it work? (laughs) That there is, yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's, the research is so has become so much more important now because we as who are primary clinicians, like I can speak for myself, um, I know what works because I try it on my clients and I try it on myself and I see a result. 
Um, but, you know, our system of care, especially here in the States, is such that, you know, there needs to be documented proof that a technique or medicine or whatever it is works. And so you have to have the, to get, everything now has to be evidence-based, right? Mm -hmm. That otherwise an insurance company or whoever isn't going to want to pay for it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that there's been a real emphasis of in our, I think, field with psychology and certainly with some of these alternative energy psychology methods, you know, that there's a demand for more research. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's what led me to that is to just show that there's something else available, not just speaking the words or, you know, people experience it and then but having something that's evidentiary is certainly um, compounds the human experience. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about some of the research projects you've been involved with and, and maybe some of the things you're working on now too. Cool, thank you. Um, well, let's see. I've done so many studies. You know, I just was looking at this before we got, I went, oh my gosh, I have like five pieces of research um, that I've done. Um, and the one that has been the one that has been the the most profound was published and i i'm so grateful for that um because it's hard to get research published you can have the most brilliant the most brilliant piece of research but it and then it has to get published so only like five percent of all research ever gets published so you think about like all of i know right all the people that are busy like doing this stuff and and uh spending money to make it happen so um, that piece of research was on anxiety and depression and, and using access bars, which is one of the things I really uh, like to use with my clients as well as research, because um, singularly, I'm now pretty much the only scientist who has researched access bars on its own. I mean, I've seen some snippets of where it's been added to other uh, modalities, we'll call it. And um that piece of research, what was fascinating about it is that I measured people's brains and I used standardized psychometric testing and the individual, um, the individuals in the study were given only one 90 minute access bar session. And it was interesting because I used so many methods of measurement. God only knows why I chose that, but I did. <laughs> and um, the, all of the participants actually had trait anxiety. So you know what trait anxiety is, right? Like it's like, it's a lifelong way of living. Right. And all of the participants changed, their anxiety changed as much as 86% in one session. So wow. usually you get that when it's situational, you might expect more change than if it was trade wise. And uh, so that was really exciting because even people getting one snippet of there's something else on the, you know, walking on egg cells, anticipation of anxiety every day to having that, then it actually, to me, I look at it and go, it's like it, if they feel better, then they have some more hope that there's something else possible and available for them. And the same thing was seen with the people who had were in that, and all people had anxiety and depression that were in the study. So interesting. Mm -hmm. And that decrease, I think, was around 82%. So, the, yeah, 82% mm -hmm. 
drop in the severity for both mm-hmm. of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was really, I, there was the first piece that I ever like looked at when I was looking at some of the psychological disorders that there are, that are there. And, and I did, I also did some brain mapping. So I measured their brains before and after to see if, okay, was there any change that went on with their brain as well? And, um, and that really showed really significant change. And it was, and it was fascinating because I showed the results to one of the profound, well-known people who's involved in the brain mapping world in North America. And he said to me, the changes were so profound that you would actually have to do neurofeedback as a for like something like 80 sessions in order to get the same results that I got when I did one access bar session for 90 minutes. And it went from like three standard deviations below the norm, which is like a really significant to normal, to normal. Yeah. And he said, no, it would take you 80 sessions of neurofeedback to do what this was. In fact, he, <laughs> he was like really surprised. Cause I went, how do you explain? Well, I wanted to know a lot of things because he's so involved in brain mapping. And um, how do you explain some of this that um, some of the results I saw that were significant, that were across all people in a study, like they all had this high place of um, at one of the, at 21 Hertz. And it was, it was across all people which is where people cross over to healing. So -hmm. when you get that, and it was at the top of the head, Mm -hmm. that particular spot at the top of the head, all of them had that going on, some of them before, and definitely all of them afterwards. I went, well, how would you explain that in your world? Um, He had no explanation. (laughs) Wow. So Terry, does that mean that the brain waves changed um like you know we know about like beta and gamma and theta and we know like theta is a very deep state of relaxation or hypnosis was it brain waves is it the way that the parts of the brain were working what can you tell us a little bit more without getting too sciencey maybe for the average no no, i I think well no because it's, it's how do you articulate it without showing it but but what I could say is this, is that when you have dysregulation, either too much activity, which you often see with anxiety, or decreased angst, decreased activity, which is what you see with depression, um, those things, they will show up as aberrations to what be different than normal. And so it's the changes in brainwave activity that shows up on this particular method of evaluation. And in this case, the people um, who had depression, they actually went from like off the charts, like reduced activity to normal. And most of the changes were seen between theta and beta, low beta, up to 21 Hertz. Um, So, somewhere between six Hertz and 21 Hertz is where the most, the majority of change was seen. And what was interesting in that particular study as well is that um, all the participants had a change in their EEG coherence, which means the connectivity between brain regions was 
changed, um, which means that it's easier for them to, you get out of the wave of, um, when you get a, a thing where there's say, let's say lower brain activity, where it's decreased because someone's depressed, you're going to get it. So it's almost like a trough. It's going to repeat that same thing where it stays in that depressive way because it's used to connecting that way. But when you move it away from that, it doesn't do it anymore. So what we saw was that it went to normal. So the level of coherence in those brain wave and those patterns changed. And I also saw that in another study that I did where we looked at, I think there were 80 people in that population. They were average people. They weren't didn't have anxiety and depression. And 67% of them had a change in brain coherence. So that just allows the brain to function better. Yes. Yes. Wow. So, so I have so many questions. Well, one, before we get into what is access bars, because I think we should explain that. Um, did now these results that you got, were they um like right after the session, or did you look like as a follow-up, like after a period of time? Like, are these changes considered temporary changes or or can there be more permanent changes to the way the brain functions? Well, in this case, um the study where I did the brain mapping, um, there were limitations to being able to do follow-up with it because it was in another city and um, there was only available equipment for a, a limited time frame. So I couldn't actually do the follow-up. And that's kind of standard sometimes, unless you're in a, a, a teaching hospital or something where they've put aside time and available um equipment to be able to do it. So it's one of the things that lacks sometimes when you do research. So I didn't have a chance to do it clinically, to, to do it from a research perspective. But what I know is that clinically, and the clients that I've worked with and people that I've talked to over time, it seems that changes that they experience either in anxiety or depression or PTSD or pain, they seem permanent. Mm -hmm. They tend not to regress. Which is really amazing. And, and I think that corroborates also with some of the other research that's now coming out, uh, again, on brain waves. And now they can look at people's brains under the MRIs, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. And I know there's been research, at least in the field of energy psychology, where <clears throat> they have shown these more permanent changes to the way the brain is working, because they'll stick people in that MRI, you know, six months or a year later, and some of these like facilities where they can do that. And they see that meditation changes the way people's brains functions and tapping EFT and even some of the breathing techniques. I mean, there's so many modalities now that are being studied this way. It's really exciting for those of us who are clinicians, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, I think that the, the idea that it changes something that changes the brainwave patterns is you know, an evidence piece and that people are looking for, but it doesn't mean that it's the only place that it changes, right? Right? Because pain, like let's say you had pain, it doesn't mean that it necessarily changes in the brain. It might, the pain might've been in your spine or something, and then it dissipates. It may or may not show up in the brain, but the brain is a really, changes in the brain is very compelling. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's a start. 
you know, we know that we know that this kind of energy work because there is no real separation, right? There's no real separation between mind, body, spirit, you know, all mm. of it is one. It's qu from a quantum physics level, right? Everything is of one. Course. And so I think that's, you know, that's the level on which we're working, but maybe science in, and research isn't quite there yet. I mean, there's some really interesting research, but I think in the application of clinical research on these kinds of techniques, I don't know that we're there yet to be able to even understand sort of the magic. What is the active ingredient here? Like what is happening energetically that's creating these structural changes or functioning of, of brain or other body parts, right? It's that our system is still somewhat fragmented in how it sees things. Yeah, because people think that if it's the brain, then that's the only thing that's changing or that if you're, or if it's the brain that changed, then it means something. If the brain didn't change, it doesn't mean something, which isn't necessarily true because sometimes people could evolve over time and then go, oh my gosh, I just realized I don't have this pain anymore three weeks later, but it didn't necessarily happen at the time. And you can't, you can measure differences in stress in the body and the stress could leave the body and show up differently in the brain later so it's really i think that our standardized our methods of measurement are as you mentioned like far behind what it needs to be um but i think that the number of people who are choosing different modalities energy medicine energy psychology um alternative methods to address things the wave is so big now that people don't really require the evidence. It's just, and it's great to have the evidence so you could have another way to discuss it. So that mm -hmm. it's, to me, it's like an introduction to another conversation, but not a necessity anymore. Cause how many people, you know, go for a massage and go, can you prove that massage works? Right, right. <laughs> well, I will say for those of us, you know, like for me in private practice, you know, people come to me and if they're open to trying different things, I can run their bars, I can do some of this energy work with them. Um, but where I work at the drug and alcohol rehab, where there are third parties involved and state regulatory agencies and insurance companies and all these, you know, all these things, um, the gift of the research that you and others have done is that it does give us an evidence base to say, look, this stuff works. It's not just woo-woo weird out there kind of stuff, which is kind of what the you know, the old paradigm was, and it's still, I think in some parts of the country might still be the case, you know, I'm lucky to be in California where people are more open to woo woo. Um, but, you know, there's still some level of disbelief. And when we have data, hard data and pictures of brains and, and EEGs and things that say, look, something happened before the person did this tapping or did this access bar session and something is different afterwards, it helps us to bring these methods to these facilities where clients who are you know, severely abused and traumatized and have horrible anxiety, depression, PTSD and all kinds of conditions and they're struggling with addiction for us to be able to do things like bars and tapping and all that because I have some evidence to show when it's questioned has been a, a huge gift and honestly has led us to have greater outcomes. You had mentioned before, you know, that some, some research is, is, it's really hard when you're doing a program to distill what is it? Is it the therapy? Is it the medicine they took? Is it the group therapy? Is it 12 step? We wrote up a, I was asked to write a research um, paper also on our work at the rehab. And we can't say what the active ingredient was, but I can say that our data for outcomes is way better than 
what the standard, and we're even getting an award actually at our rehab for the, getting better outcomes with our clients. So reduction in symptoms, in their mental health symptoms, reduction in their drug and alcohol cravings and feeling better about themselves. And all of this work is part of it. So I'm grateful yeah. to people like you that do pave the way for us to have some data to show these folks that, hey, there's something to this. And you should allow us to do it with the clients who so desperately need it because the standard paradigm, you know, treatment model isn't super effective. The, the mm -hmm. statistics are not good for addiction treatment. So, yeah. And that's fantastic that you have done that um, and is being recognized as being greater than, um, than other outcomes, other in clinical practice for, for that kind of environment. I mean, that's fantastic. That in and of itself is bonus. Yes, yes. Really exciting so stuff. So great. I know. It is it is so exciting. Um, so Terry, tell us more about what is Access Bars, because people listening to this at this point are probably their curiosity is whetted if they don't already know. <laughs> <laughs> what is Access Bars? So Access Bars, I would call it an energy technique. And it's where the person, they can be sitting um, or lying down and the practitioner, um, touches certain points on the head. There's 32 points on the head. And what the practice does is it releases energy. How do I know it releases energy? I just know. <laughs> you can feel it in your fingers. I mean, you can it feel of like course you can feel it in your fingers. Feel these tingly spots on the head, they really are. And if you move your finger, just like you know, a little bit over, it doesn't feel tingly in that, in a different spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And the release of the energy, what that does is, is anything that is not serving the person, any thought, feeling, emotion, anything at all, that is really the person um, is willing to let go of, will release. So if they had trauma and it, it just dissipates. It dissipates not only from the mind, but from the physical body too. And what, and it's permanent. Mm -hmm. It's definitely that's, permanent. That's what's yeah. really exciting. Yeah. And people can have, there was some, people can have sessions that are as short as 20 minutes and have significant change. So it's not like it requires. So the research I did was 90 minutes because I chose 90 minutes and that was what I chose. But I, the new research that I'm working on now, um, there were sessions that were 30 minutes long and the session length did not determine the outcome. Mm -hmm. So whether you had 30, 60 or 90 minutes as part of that other piece of research, the clinical outcomes uh, in changes in uh, anxiety, depression, and stress, there was no difference statistically in like, or I think it's like 400 people. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you can have a really short session and have something different happen, occur. Yeah. That's really cool because I would have thought, yeah, a longer session would clear more stuff. I also would think and I don't know if there's been any research on this, that multiple sessions, right? Because we we don't necessarily just, we could just do access bars one time, but for those of us that are active practitioners, I know I get my bars run at least once a week um, as much or as much as possible. Um, there is There seems to also be like a cumulative effect. Has there been any research on that? 
Um, no, I I designed two studies that had three week follow follow ups in them, and the it's up for the person um, to be part of the follow up, and it's voluntary. So if they don't choose to do the follow up, it just doesn't get done. You can't force people to do research. It's one of the one of the the things. It's like they can or they can't. They can say start or stop anytime they want to. It's part of good research. But it's funny, I, I didn't manage to uh, capture data as a follow-up um, in any of the research that I've done so far. And it could be just people were feeling good or, you know, whatever, and just didn't get, I mean, we all have busy lives, right? Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, let me just do one more survey because I can. Um, so yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't managed to do that. But I do see that um, with my in my clinical practice that the more people choose to do access bars, it appears that they have, well, absolutely less stress for sure. Mm -hmm. And anxiety. I yeah, I see that too. And I certainly see that in my own life. And, and um, I think in general, you know, if you're able, I mean, it's always a combination of things, right? Um, you know, I don't just do bars with people. I do also work with more traditional, let's look at your belief systems, right? You know, the kind of, kind of the cognitive behavioral piece. Um, let's look at um, unresolved trauma and fear responses. You know, the, the brain mm -hmm. that gets hijacked by that fight, flight, freeze response. Um, but I think that the access bars and some of the other body processes, which we can talk a little bit about, those that which is other kinds of energy work under the umbrella of access consciousness i do see that people with trauma and that overactive nervous system right where they kind of mm -hmm. get triggered to that fight flight freeze response in situations that are not life or death situations i do see that calming after after a while in clients who get repeated sessions of bars and body processes yeah and and it's funny because you talk about tapping and i did do some research uh where i did 35 people and I did brain mapping before and after an EFT session and they were people who had anxiety and they noted that their anxiety um, decreased and it also showed that there were changes and patterns in their brainwave um, for for that and that was after I think uh, if I recall correctly because that did that research in like 2016 um the tapping session was 20 minutes with a practitioner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's so that was really, so, you know, just another place of where other kinds of techniques can show up and make changes, right? And rapid changes. Like what I've seen in the, especially with like the really growing body of research, I think at this point, there's over 250 published research studies on sort of the energy medicine, energy psychology techniques. And, um, what they're finding is that when they compare something like EFT tapping, let's say to a gold standard cognitive behavioral therapy in treating PTSD or phobias or things like that, they may find that both techniques get similar results, but the tapping or the energy-based ones are like in half the time, right? Oh, Instead yeah. of 12 sessions, they get the same result in six sessions. And I think that that is really what's so fascinating because you know, people will do traditional talk therapy for years on end and feel like they're not necessarily getting anywhere. But when I work with folks with these other methods, they see results really quickly. Sometimes like right at, right at the end of the session, they walk out feeling way better than when they came in. 
that to me is really the exciting part of this work. Can you I know. tell us about, yeah, what you found in your clinical work, working with these tools? Yeah. And you know, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because I did a study on PTSD, anxiety, depression, and PTSD. And um, you're mentioning like how it's different and how it happens faster. And it was funny, I worked on these, I did research on these police officers in the UK. And the ones that were introduced into the study came from the police federation from the psychologist and they were at the end of their there was nothing more they can do they had done emdr they had done talk therapy they had do all the standard um, kinds of things that they would use including pharmacology and they had not really had any breakthroughs in changing the person's anxiety depression or ptsd and that particular study i did seven sessions of access bars and then I did pre and post, um, recorded the results. And the what was amazing, so you have to think, these people, they're about to retire, even though they're young people, because they have not been able to get out of the trauma that they had were, were experiencing. And the one that, and it was like a, not a ton of cases, because, <laughs> because then we were interrupted by um, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> we're just interrupted by COVID. Um, and, but the one that was really interesting is the one who was really severe. He had done everything. He had PTSD and the results was a 51% drop in PTSD symptoms, which is considered clinically significant by that particular um, methodology. And that was seven sessions. And that was at the end, like everything I've been trying and going is so fantastic to me that there's these other things that are available and they don't have to be the last resort, but they, you know, they, <laughs> they could be a first resort, but there's some other things that are available even no matter what. And they happen quickly because seven sessions for someone who's had PTSD for a long time is not very much. Well, I think it was a huge coup for the Energy Psychology Association when they were able to get the VA, you know, the Veterans Administration, which is a notoriously difficult bureaucracy to navigate, to actually approve EFT tapping for their veterans with PTSD. And, you know, um, I think that's amazing when you get like a big organization like that, that approves and calls this method safe, you know, mm -hmm. and that it's to use with those veterans who, yeah, have experienced horrific things and for whom the traditional methods haven't been super helpful. Like I, I got to say as a clinician exposure therapy to me, like having the person tell their story or keep thinking about the same traumatic thing over and over and over again, just re-traumatizes them, makes them want to go out and drink and use drugs. It doesn't seem, I, I don't find it to be particularly helpful, but if I add tapping, if we add access bars, we have these, you know, these other methods, even meditation and, you know, um, specific breathing techniques, all those things do seem to calm the amygdala, do seem to get the person out of that fight, flight, freeze response, which mm -hmm. pharmacology and other things haven't been able to do. I have a friend who's a psychiatrist. She's like, we don't have good meds for PTSD. They don't do a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting because I'm thinking about it sort of interrupts these types of modalities, if you want to call a modality, seem to interrupt the pattern of how things are. So if the energy is there and now it's not there, or 
the person experiences something that's entirely different in a very short period of time, it probably signals something in the brain or the their sense of being that there's something else there. And I think that the brain response always goes to better, but I could be. <laughs> I don't think you're incorrect. I mean, look, 5,000 years of traditional Chinese medicine says if you actually were to restore balance to the flow of energy or chi in the body, the body mm -hmm. has the capacity to heal itself. That's true. Right. That's definitely and, if true. and if there's no real separation between, you know, the body, the mind and all of that, then I think it would stand to reason that if we can restore balance to what is energetically not in balance with these different methods, then the, the, we all have the capacity for, for innate wellness and health and well-being, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, right? Across all of it. So yeah. And but I was thinking that it defaults to the positive. Like the the body yeah. and the brain default to healing. They doesn't default to the other way around to to degradation. Mm -hmm. No, and I think that's what that's what the hmm, that's what the traditional paradigm has overlooked, right? In their <laughs> in, in their in in their focus on where you started the conversation with symptomology, right? Let's medicate and quell these symptoms rather than getting at the root cause of what's causing a dysfunction letting the body, you know, and the being restore toward wellness, default back toward that state of wellness mm -hmm. that we were born into this world with, right? I know, right? Yeah. Yes. So tell us about some of the new, newer stuff you're working on. You're, you're really now wanting to work with bringing bars into corporate environments, workplaces. Tell us more about that. Well, one of the things that I've been aware of, um, I, I stopped doing research. I, I had a bunch of research projects going just before COVID um, closed down, <laughs> closed down things. Um, and so I put everything on pause. And then more recently, I've been looking at the aftermath and how many things are like seemingly upside down. And one of the things that seems to be prevailing is um, incredible internal stress for people and how they bring it into the workplace. And they, they're fighting for this sort of what I, what they say is work life balance, which means like, if you're working, you're not living. Mm -hmm. I go, that's a very interesting, interesting point of view, but, yeah. <laughs> but, and then escape to go home, which there's all of this other stress that they try to manage. And it's kind of, I'm not sure that how we've designed living currently on the planet with all of the things that are going on and all the things that have gone on with COVID to manage, we are not given the tools to manage it. Right. We're not even given the tools to manage this much change as it has changed, you know, people's perceptions of living. And, right. and I looked at it and I went, wow, if we could create an environment within corporations where the corporations themselves um, support whole wellness, not just here's your here's your money to go to the gym, but it became culturally balanced, if you will, um, and that people could live from a sort of a balanced way where there was no separation between work and life or work and living, then what would that create not only for the people who are in the corporations, 
but also for the corporations, because the corporations in and of themselves would actually energetically become greater because the people would be feeling better. And if they're feeling better, they are more focused and more present in their work. And some of the research that was done by Harvard years ago was that one of the big cost factors to corporations is um, is lack of presenteeism and absenteeism. So presenteeism is like you show up for work, but you're actually just, you're just showing up for work. And right. then, you know, absenteeism is just what it is. It's like, you don't show up. And to, but the, the idea of presenteeism, not being available and like, how do you do that? So if you can recapture people who are just showing up for work and have them be more engaged, you actually create a different environment, not only for the people, but the corporation. And, and I think, but ultimately, you know, we have to look, we have to look after people, not that the corporation making more money is like an important thing, but it's like, how do you get it so that everybody, you create an environment that is optimal for everybody? Yes. Well, it's so. the principle that we talk about in access consciousness, you know, when we talk about some of the verbal concepts and verbal facilitation, what, what I would refer to as the kingdom of we, right? Mm -hmm. Which is where it's the greatest benefit for all parties, not just um, beneficial for, let's say, the people at the top making the most salary or the shareholders or whoever, right? There's been an emphasis, I would say, in our corporate culture where that has been the case, Mm -hmm. And I think what we're seeing since the one of the, you know, byproducts of the pandemic is the great resignation and people saying, no, you know, you can't continue to, you know, treat us this way or exploit us or, you know, not not allow us to have like work life balance or whatever it is. I think there's a real demand from the workforce to, mm -hmm. to have a different kind of structure. So I think you're really on the cutting edge here with um, enhanced wellness and work life living balance and, and how to and how to look at it from that point of view you know it's like to recognize that the for the corporations to get that the value that people bring to their to their corporation is really valuable yes yes like yeah. really valuable and i think it's kind of everyone is so looking at how technology is going to save the day and i go not really <laughs> you still need the the human thing even more so now than ever yes and we need to invest in our workers and in and into helping them function and and feel good and be at their best so they can contribute more to whatever it is they're doing i mean that's just for for our humanity as a whole you know like i know it's, right it's super <laughs> required right now yeah so, yeah, totally. so how can if people want to find out more about this or about um, your private practice work or like, how can they get a hold of you? Where can they go? The best way to reach me is on my website, which is drterryhope.com. So D-R-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-O-P-E.com. Yeah. And I love your last name, offering us hope. <laughs> hope, <laughs> hope for a dip, for, for a greater future for all of us. And I think that these tools and the research that you're doing and just 
all that's getting created right now in this area, in this field is just so wonderfully exciting. So many people are benefiting from these, these methods and I know. just, just tremendous mir and, and miracles. There have been miracles, you know, many, many, I'm sure you've seen in your practice. I certainly have. Oh, I've experienced sure. it myself. I should be dead by now from a supposedly incurable disease that energy medicine and these approaches, guess what? I'm still here. So <laughs> That's so we know great. this stuff works, and I'm really grateful to people like you who are giving us some some evidence to show that it works, so that we can get these tools out there to more people in the world. So I'm really grateful for your contribution to that and for being here with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, and and really thank you for your time. I really uh, it's been fun. Yeah. Thanks everyone also for tuning in. If you like this episode, please. Click like, share it, comment on it, rate it on uh, Apple, whatever it is, so that we can get the algorithms to show this material to more people so others can find out that there are many, many other healing modalities out there. If you or someone you love is suffering with depression, anxiety, or any other kind of mental health condition, um, that there is hope for you to heal. So thanks so much, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.